Chapter Twelve, Part One of Life and Adventures of Martin Chuzzlewit. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Life and Adventures of Martin Chuzzlewit by Charles Dickens. Chapter Twelve will be seen in the long run, if not in the short one, to concern Mr. Pinch and others nearly. Mr. Pecksniff asserts the dignity of outraged virtue. Young Martin Chuzzlewit forms a desperate resolution. Part One. Mr. Pinch and Martin, little dreaming of the stormy weather that impended, made themselves very comfortable in the Pecksniffian halls, and improved their friendship daily. Martin's facility, both of invention and execution, being remarkable, the grammar school proceeded with great vigor and Tom repeatedly declared that if there were anything like certainty in human affairs or impartiality in human judges, a design so new and full of merit could not fail to carry off the first prize when the time of competition arrived. Without being quite so sanguine himself, Martin had his hopeful anticipations too, and they served to make him brisk and eager at his task. "'If I should turn out a great architect,' Tom said the new pupil one day, as he stood at a little distance from his drawing, and eyed it with much complacency. "'I'll tell you what should be one of the things I'd build.' "'Aye,' cried Tom, "'what?' "'Why, your fortune.' "'No,' said Tom Pinch, quite as much delighted as if the thing were done. "'Would you, though? How kind of you to say so.' "'I'd build it up, Tom,' returned Martin, "'on such a strong foundation that it should last your life.' I and your children's lives, too, and their children's after them. I'd be your patron, Tom. I'd take you under my protection. Let me see the man who should give the cold shoulder to anybody I chose to protect and patronize, if I were at the top of the tree, Tom. No, I don't think, said Mr. Pinch, upon my word, that I was ever more gratified than by this. I really don't. "'Oh, I mean what I say,' retorted Martin, with a manner as free and easy in its condescension to, not to say in its compassion for, the other as if he were already first architect, in ordinary to all the crowned heads in Europe. "'I'd do it. I'd provide for you.' "'I am afraid,' said Tom, shaking his head, "'that I should be a mighty awkward person to provide for.' "'Poo, poo,' rejoined Martin. "'Never mind that.' "'If I took it in my head to say, "'Pinch is a clever fellow, I approve of Pinch, "'I should like to know the man who would venture to put himself in opposition to me. "'Besides, confound it, Tom, you could be useful to me in a hundred ways.' "'If I were not useful in one or two, it shouldn't be for want of trying,' said Tom. "'For instance,' pursued Martin, after a short reflection, "'you'd be a capital fellow now to see that my ideas were properly carried out, "'and to overlook the works in their progress before they were sufficiently advanced "'to be very interesting to me, and to take all that sort of plain sailing. "'Then you'd be a splendid fellow to show people over my studio, "'and to talk about art to em when I couldn't be bored myself, and all that kind of thing. "'For it would be devilish creditable, Tom. I'm quite in earnest, I give you my word.' "'to have a man of your information about one, "'instead of some ordinary blockhead. "'Oh, I'd take care of you. "'You'd be useful. Rely upon it.' "'To say that Tom had no idea of playing first fiddle "'in any social orchestra, "'but was always quite satisfied to be set down "'for the hundred and fiftieth violin in the band, or thereabouts, "'is to express his modesty in very inadequate terms. 
He was much delighted, therefore, by these observations. "'I should be married to her then, Tom, of course,' said Martin. What was that which checked Tom Pinch so suddenly in the high flow of his gladness, bringing the blood into his honest cheeks, and a remorseful feeling to his honest heart, as if he were unworthy of his friend's regard? "'I should be married to her then,' said Martin, looking with a smile towards the light. "'And we should have, I hope, children about us. They'd be very fond of you, Tom.' But not a word said Mr. Pinch. The words he would have uttered died upon his lips, and found a life more spiritual in self-denying thoughts. "'All the children hereabouts are fond of you, Tom. And mine would be, of course,' pursued Martin. "'Perhaps I might name one of them after you.' "'Tom, eh?' "'Well, I don't know. Tom's not a bad name. Thomas Pinch Chuzzlewit. T.P.C. on his pinafores. No objection to that, I should say.' Tom cleared his throat and smiled. "'She would like you, Tom, I know,' said Martin. "'Aye,' cried Tom Pinch faintly. "'I can tell exactly what she would think of you,' said Martin, leaning his chin upon his hand and looking through the window-glass, as if he read there what he said. "'I know her so well. She would smile, Tom, often at first when you spoke to her, or when she looked at you, merrily, too, but you wouldn't mind that. A brighter smile you never saw.' "'No, no,' said Tom, "'I wouldn't mind that.' "'She would be as tender with you, Tom,' said Martin, "'as if you were a child yourself. "'So you are almost in some things, ain't you, Tom?' "'Mr. Pinch nodded his entire assent. "'She would always be kind and good-humoured and glad to see you,' said Martin, "'and when she found out exactly what sort of fellow you were, "'which she'd do very soon, "'she would pretend to give you little commissions to execute, "'and to ask little services of you which she knew you were burning to render.' so that when she really pleased you most, she would try to make you think you most pleased her. She would take to you uncommonly, Tom, and would understand you far more delicately than I ever shall, and would often say, I know, that you were a harmless, gentle, well-intentioned, good fellow. How silent Tom Pinch was! "'In honour of old time,' said Martin, "'and ever having heard you play the organ in this damp little church down here, for nothing, too,' "'We will have one in the house. "'I shall build an architectural music-room on a plan of my own, "'and it'll look rather knowing in a recess at one end. "'There you shall play away, Tom, till you tire yourself. "'And as you like to do so in the dark, it shall be dark. "'And many's the summer evening she and I will sit and listen to you, Tom. "'Be sure of that.' "'It may have required a stronger effort on Tom Pinch's part "'to leave the seat on which he sat,' and shake his friend by both hands, with nothing but serenity and grateful feeling painted on his face. It may have required a stronger effort to perform this simple act with a pure heart than to achieve many and many a deed to which the doubtful trumpet blown by fame has lustily resounded. Doubtful, because from its long hovering over scenes of violence the smoke and steam of death have clogged the keys of that brave instrument, and it is not always that its notes are either true or tuneful. "'It's a proof of the kindness of human nature,' said Tom, "'characteristically putting himself quite out of sight in the matter, "'that everybody who comes here as you have done "'is more considerate and affectionate to me "'than I should have any right to hope "'if I were the most sanguine creature in the world, "'or should have any power to express "'if I were the most eloquent. "'It really overpowers me. 
"'But trust me,' said Tom, "'that I am not ungrateful, that I never forget, "'and that if I can ever prove the truth of my words to you, I will.' "'That's all right,' observed Martin, "'leaning back in his chair with a hand in each pocket, "'and yawning drearily. "'Very fine talking, Tom, but I'm at Pecksniff's, I remember, "'and perhaps a mile or so out of the high road to fortune "'just at this minute. "'So you've heard again this morning from what's-his-name, eh?' "'Who may that be?' asked Tom. "'seeming to enter a mild protest "'on behalf of the dignity of an absent person. "'You know, what is it, North Key?' "'Westlock,' rejoined Tom, "'in rather a louder tone than usual. "'Ah, to be sure,' said Martin, "'Westlock. "'I knew it was something connected "'with the point of the compass and a door. "'Well, and what says Westlock?' "'Oh, he has come into his property,' "'answered Tom, nodding his head and smiling. "'He's a lucky dog,' said Martin. "'I wish it were mine instead.' "'Is that all the mystery you were to tell me?' "'No,' said Tom, "'not all.' "'What's the rest?' asked Martin. "'For the matter of that,' said Tom, "'it's no mystery, and you won't think much of it, "'but it's very pleasant to me. "'John always used to say when he was here, "'Mark my words, Pinch, "'when my father's executors cash up.' "'He used strange expressions now and then, "'but that was his way.' "'Cash up's a very good expression,' observed Martin.' "'when other people don't apply it to you. "'Well, what a slow fellow you are, Pinch.' "'Yes, I am, I know,' said Tom. "'But you'll make me nervous if you tell me so. "'I'm afraid you have put me out a little now, "'for I forget what I was going to say.' "'When John's father's executors cashed up,' said Martin impatiently. "'Oh, yes, to be sure,' cried Tom. "'Yes, then,' says John, "'I'll give you a dinner, Pinch, "'and come down to Salisbury on purpose.' "'Now, when John wrote the other day, the morning Pecksniff left, you know, "'he said his business was on the point of being immediately settled, "'and as he was to receive his money directly, when could I meet him at Salisbury? "'I wrote and said, any day this week, and I told him besides that there was a new pupil here, "'and what a fine fellow you were, and what friends we had become. "'Upon which John writes back this letter,' Tom produced it, "'fixes to-morrow, sends his compliments to you, "'and begs that we three may have the pleasure of dining together, "'not at the house where you and I were, either, "'but at the very first hotel in the town. "'Read what he says.' "'Very well,' said Martin, glancing over it with his customary coolness. "'Much obliged to him. I'm agreeable.' "'Tom could have wished him to be a little more astonished, "'a little more pleased, or in some form or other "'a little more interested in such a great event.' But he was perfectly self-possessed, and falling into his favourite solace of whistling, took another turn at the grammar school as if nothing at all had happened. Mr. Pecksniff's horse, being regarded in the light of a sacred animal, only to be driven by him, the chief priest of that temple, or by some person distinctly nominated for the time being to that high office by himself, the two young men agreed to walk to Salisbury, and so when the time came they set off on foot, which was, after all, a better mode of travelling than in the gig, as the weather was very cold and very dry. Better. A rare, strong, hearty, healthy walk. Four statute miles an hour, preferable to that rumbling, tumbling, jolting, shaking, scraping, creaking, villainous old gig, where the two things will not admit of comparison. It is an insult to the walk to set them side by side, where is an instance of a gig having ever circulated a man's blood, unless, when putting him in danger of his neck, it awakened in his veins and in his ears and all along his spine a tingling heat, much more peculiar than agreeable? 
When did a gig ever sharpen anybody's wits and energies, unless it was when the horse bolted and crashing madly down a steep hill with a stone wall at the bottom, his desperate circumstances suggested to the only gentleman left inside some novel and unheard-of mode of dropping out behind, better than the gig. The air was cold, Tom, so it was. There was no denying it. But would it have been more genial in the gig? The blacksmith's fire burned very bright and leaped up high, as though it wanted men to warm. But would it have been less tempting, looked at from the clammy cushions of a gig? The wind blew keenly, nipping the features of the hardy white who fought his way along, blinding him with his own hair, if he had enough to it, and wintry dust if he hadn't, stopping his breath as though he had been soused in a cold bath, tearing aside his wrappings up, and whistling in the very marrow of his bones. But it would have done all this a hundred times more fiercely to a man in a gig, wouldn't it? A fig for gigs. Better than the gig. When were travellers by wheels and hooves seen with such red-hot cheeks as those? When were they so good-humouredly and merrily bloused? When did their laughter ring upon the air as they turned them round? What time the stronger gusts came sweeping up, and facing round again as they passed by, dashed on in such a glow of ruddy health as nothing could keep pace with but the high spirits it engendered? Better than the gig! Why, here is a man in a gig coming the same way now. Look at him as he passes his whip into his left hand, chafes his numbed right fingers on his granite leg, and beats those marble toes of his upon the footboard. Ha, ha, ha! Who would exchange this rapid hurry of the blood for yonder stagnant misery, though its pace were twenty miles for one? Better than the gig! No man in a gig could have such interest in the milestones. No man in a gig could see or feel or think like merry users of their legs. How, as the wind sweeps on upon these breezy downs, it tracks its flight in darkening ripples on the grass and smoothest shadows on the hills. Look round and round upon this bare, bleak plain and see, even here, upon a winter's day, how beautiful the shadows are. Alas, it is the nature of their kind to be so. The loveliest things in life, Tom, are but shadows, and they come and go, and change and fade away as rapidly as these. Another mile, and then begins a fall of snow, making the crow, who skims away so close above the ground to shirk the wind, a blot of ink upon the landscape. But though it drives and drifts against them as they walk, stiffening on their skirts and freezing in the lashes of their eyes, they wouldn't have it fall more sparingly. No, not so much as by a single flake, although they had to go a score of miles. And, lo, the towers of the old cathedral rise before them even now, and by and by they come into the sheltered streets, made strangely silent by their white carpet, and so to the inn for which they are bound, where they present such flushed and burning faces to the cold waiter, and are so brimful of vigour that he almost feels assaulted by their presence. And having nothing to oppose to the attack, being fresh, or rather stale, from the blazing fire in the coffee-room, is quite put out of his pale countenance. A famous inn, the hall a very grove of dead game and dangling joints of mutton, and in one corner an illustrious larder, with glass doors developing cold fowls and noble joints and tarts, wherein the raspberry jam coyly withdrew itself, as such a precious creature should, behind a latticework of pastry, 
and behold on the first floor at the court end of the house in a room with all the window curtains drawn a fire piled halfway up the chimney plates warming before it wax candles gleaming everywhere and a table spread for three with silver and glass enough for thirty john westlock not the old john of pecksniff's but a proper gentleman looking another and a grander person with the consciousness of being his own master and having money in the bank and yet in some respects the old john too for he seized tom pinch by both his hands the instant he appeared and fairly hugged him in his cordial welcome and this said john is mr chuzzlewit i am very glad to see him john had an off-hand manner of his own so they shook hands warmly and were friends in no time stand off a moment tom cried the old pupil laying one hand on each of mr pinch's shoulders and holding him out at arm's length let me look at you just the same not a bit changed why it's not so very long ago you know said tom pinch after all it seems an age to me cried john and so it ought to seem to you you dog and then he pushed Tom down into the easiest chair and clapped him on the back so heartily and so like his old self in their old bedroom at old Pecksniff's that it was a toss-up with Tom Pinch whether he should laugh or cry. Laughter wanted, and they all three laughed together. "'I have ordered everything for dinner that we used to say we'd have, Tom,' observed John Westlock. "'No,' said Tom Pinch. "'Have you?' "'Everything. Don't laugh if you can help it before the waiters.' I couldn't when I was ordering it. It's like a dream. John was wrong there, because nobody ever dreamed such soup as was put upon the table directly afterwards, or such fish, or such side-dishes, or such a top and bottom, or such a course of birds and sweets, or, in short, anything approaching the reality of that entertainment at ten and sixpence a head, exclusive of wines. As to them— the man who can dream such iced champagne, such claret, port, or sherry, had better go to bed and stop there. But perhaps the finest feature of the banquet was that nobody was half so much amazed by everything as John himself, who in his high delight was constantly bursting into fits of laughter, and then endeavouring to appear preternaturally solemn, lest the waiters should conceive he wasn't used to it. Some of the things they brought him to carve were such outrageous practical jokes, though, that it was impossible to stand it. And when Tom Pinch insisted, in spite of the deferential advice of an attendant, not only on breaking down the outer wall of a raised pie with a tablespoon, but on trying to eat it afterwards, John lost all dignity, and sat behind the gorgeous dish-cover at the head of the table, roaring to that extent that he was audible in the kitchen nor had he the least objection to laugh at himself, as he demonstrated when they had all three gathered round the fire and the dessert was on the table, at which period the head-waiter inquired with respectful solicitude whether that port, being a light and tawny wine, was suited to his taste, or whether he would wish to try a fruity port with greater body. To this John gravely answered that he was well satisfied with what he had, which he esteemed, as one might say, a pretty tidy vintage for which the waiter thanked him and withdrew, and then John told his friends, with a broad grin, that he supposed it was all right, but he didn't know, and went off into a perfect shout. They were very merry and full of enjoyment the whole time, but not the least pleasant part of the festival was when they all three sat about the fire, cracking nuts, drinking wine, and talking cheerfully. 
It happened that Tom Pinch had a word to say to his friend the organist's assistant, and so deserted his warm corner for a few minutes at this season, lest it should grow too late, leaving the other two young men together. They drank his health in his absence, of course, and John Westlock took that opportunity of saying that he had never had even a peevish word with Tom during the whole term of their residence in Mr. Pecksniff's house. This naturally led him to dwell upon Tom's character, and to hint that Mr. Pecksniff understood it pretty well. He only hinted this, and very distantly, knowing that it pained Tom Pinch to have that gentleman disparaged, and thinking it would be as well to leave the new pupil to his own discoveries. "'Yes,' said Martin, "'it's impossible to like Pinch better than I do, or to do greater justice to his good qualities. He is the most willing fellow I ever saw.' "'He's rather too willing,' observed John, who was quick in observation. "'It's quite a fault in him.' "'So it is,' said Martin. "'Very true. "'There was a fellow only a week or so ago, a Mr. Tigg, "'who borrowed all the money he had on a promise to repay it in a few days. "'It was but half a sovereign, to be sure. "'But it's well it was no more, for he'll never see it again.' "'Poor fellow,' said John, who had been very attentive to these few words.' Perhaps you have not had an opportunity of observing that, in his own pecuniary transactions, Tom's proud. You don't say so. No, I haven't. What do you mean? Won't he borrow? John Westlock shook his head. That's very odd, said Martin, setting down his empty glass. He's a strange compound, to be sure. As to receiving money as a gift, resumed John Westlock, I think he'd die first. "'He's made up of simplicity,' said Martin. "'Help yourself.' "'You, however,' pursued John, filling his own glass, "'and looking at his companion with some curiosity, "'who are older than the majority of Mr. Pecksniff's assistants, "'and have evidently had much more experience, "'understand him, I have no doubt, "'and see how liable he is to be imposed upon.' "'Certainly,' said Martin, stretching out his legs "'and holding his wine between his eye and the light. "'Mr. Pecksniff knows that, too. "'So do his daughters, eh?' "'John Westlock smiled, but made no answer. "'By the by,' said Martin, "'that reminds me. "'What's your opinion of Pecksniff? "'How did he use you? "'What do you think of him now? "'Coolly, you know, when it's all over?' "'Ask Pinch,' returned the old pupil. "'He knows what my sentiments used to be upon the subject. "'They are not changed, I assure you.' "'No, no,' said Martin. "'I'd rather have them from you.' "'But Pinch says they are unjust,' urged John, with a smile. "'Oh, well, then I know what course they take beforehand,' said Martin. "'And therefore you can have no delicacy in speaking plainly. "'Don't mind me, I beg. "'I don't like him, I tell you frankly. "'I am with him because it happens from particular circumstances to suit my convenience. "'I have some ability, I believe, in that way.' and the obligation, if any, will most likely be on his side, and not mine. At the lowest mark the balance will be even, and there'll be no obligation at all. So you may talk to me as if I had no connection with him. "'If you press me to give my opinion,' returned John Westlock. "'Yes, I do,' said Martin. "'You'll oblige me.' "'I should say,' resumed the other, "'that he is the most consummate scoundrel on the face of the earth.' "'Oh!' "'said Martin, as coolly as ever. "'That's rather strong.' "'Not stronger than he deserves,' said John. 
and if he called upon me to express my opinion of him to his face, I would do so in the very same terms, without the least qualification. His treatment of Pinch is in itself enough to justify them, but when I look back upon the five years I passed in that house, and remember the hypocrisy, the knavery, the meannesses, the false pretenses, the lip-service of that fellow, and his trading in saintly semblances for the very worst realities, when I remember how often I was the witness of all this, and how often I was made a kind of party to it by the fact of being there, with him for my teacher, I swear to you that I almost despise myself. Martin drained his glass and looked at the fire. I don't mean to say that it is the right feeling, pursued John Westlock, because it was no fault of mine, and I can quite understand, you, for instance, fully appreciating him, and yet being forced by circumstances to remain there. I tell you simply what my feeling is, and even now, when, as you say, it's all over, and when I have the satisfaction of knowing that he always hated me, and we always quarrelled, and I always told him my mind, even now I feel sorry that I didn't yield to an impulse I often had as a boy of running away from him and going abroad." "'Why abroad?' asked Martin, turning his eyes upon the speaker. "'In search,' replied John Westlock, shrugging his shoulders, "'of the livelihood I couldn't have earned at home. "'There would have been something spirited in that. "'But come, fill your glass, and let us forget him.' "'As soon as you please,' said Martin. "'In reference to myself and my connection with him, "'I have only to repeat what I said before. "'I have taken my own way with him so far, "'and shall continue to do so.' even more than ever, for the fact is, to tell you the truth, that I believe he looks to me to supply his defects, and couldn't afford to lose me. I had a notion of that in first going there. Your health. Thank you, returned young Westlock. Yours. And may the new pupil turn out as well as you can desire. What new pupil? The fortunate youth, born under an auspicious star, returned John Westlock, laughing, whose parents or guardians are destined to be hooked by the advertisement. What? Don't you know that he has advertised again? No. Oh, yes, I read it just before dinner in the old newspaper. I know it to be his, having some reason to remember the style. Hush, here's Pinch. Strange, is it not, that the more he likes Pecksniff, if he can like him better than he does, the greater reason one has to like him. Not a word more, or we shall spoil his whole enjoyment. End of chapter 12, part 1